Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am here with Deirdre Bosa. She is the host of CNBC's Tech Check. D, welcome back. I missed you these past few weeks. I missed OK Computer, the audience. I'm thrilled to be back. All right. It's been a while. Just a couple weeks, though. Don't Let's not overdo it here. Don't I missed forever, you. Dan. No, you've been busy. And it's interesting because, listen, on CNBC, it seems like, you know, we go from one really bubble situation to another. But this one is inflating. This one feels like periods that I just can't remember because the scale in which it is happening in some of the largest companies in the NASDAQ. We've seen little mini bubbles find their way here and there over the last 10 years as it relates to technology, but none have been to the extent of this. And really just to put a, a very fine point on this, we have 10 stocks that have powered the NASDAQ and the S&P to a degree that I just can't recall. And so when you think of a NASDAQ 100 that's up 36%, you think of 10 stocks, D, that make up 50% of the weight of that. That same 10 stocks make up 26% of the weight of the S&P 500. And on average, they're up more than 40% or so, $8 trillion in market cap. Talk to me about this. Put this in some context from you and your reporting, some of the things that you're hearing from the companies, some investors who are starting to scratch their heads a little bit because it all seems fairly well tied to this kind of newfound enthusiasm about AI working itself into almost every major tech company, every major vertical that exists out there. Yeah, and we've spent a good amount of time looking into the idea, is this another bubble? So many people are so excited about this generative AI shift and say that that's going to be bigger than the mobile computing shift, the internet, the industrial revolution, depending on who you ask. Can it be bubbly? You say 10, Dan. We have a new name for this group. I'm going to narrow it a little further. The Magnificent Seven. I think we've been using it because no one's come up with anything better. Although I am open if anyone out there in the audience has a better name for this or an acronym all years. I think they're called AI stocks. But aside from NVIDIA, maybe Microsoft, maybe Google, they're AI adjacent, right? We still don't exactly know what Amazon's plans are. We know that they're working on some stuff. Apple had an event where they didn't even mention AI once, although... AI, but any other name is still AI. So they did mention machine learning and a whole bunch of other language that refers to that. So I guess I'm wondering from you, though, Dan, I mean, it's hard to have a bubble and call this bubbly when these companies, the Magnificent Seven, have just enormous cash piles. That's different than anything we've ever seen. I went back to the dot-com bubble and burst, and it was nowhere near. One, the P.E. ratios were so much higher than they are today. Two, the companies, the Qualcomm, the Cisco's, the Yahoo's had just a minuscule amount of cash on hand versus the Apples and Microsoft's and Amazon's of our current time. I guess what it comes down to is commoditization, right? So, so the excitement right now and the multiples that investors are willing to pay both in the public and the private markets is based on 
what they think is a transformative technology. And I think we can all agree that it's obviously transformative, but it's not like it just came onto the scene with the introduction of chat GPT in December. These companies, and you and I have talked about this a lot on the pod over the last five months or so, this is embedded into their fabric, right? Like that Google was an AI first company starting in 2016 when Sundar said that. So I guess to me, it's like, this is what you pay a high multiple for a stock like Microsoft that traded at a consumer staple, like low 20s, mid 20s PE, because you expect them to be redeploying these cash hoards and investing in the next thing because they can't afford to miss it. I guess what I think when I use the term bubble, and listen, bubbles can inflate for years. That was the lesson that we learned in the late 90s. The S&P went up on average 35% a year from 1995 until it topped out in 2000. But when it burst, it got cut in half. When the NASDAQ bubble burst, it went down 85% or so. That's not going to happen this time around. But could the S&P get cut in half? Because at some point, a lot of this technology is further away from commercialization and gets commoditized and all the excitement around it abates. Yeah, like to me, that seems obvious to me. Putting your finger on one that happens, that's the hard part. So I think there's a distinction between all the AI that these companies have been working on in the back end for a decade and what is now in front of us, the chat GPTs, the BARD, actual revenue to power these engines. I think we're at the beginning of its commercialization, actually, and this type of generative AI that we're going to use in our daily lives. I actually don't go to search very often anymore. I go to BARD and OpenAI. I use both of them. But I wonder, Dan, when you say that bubbles can go on for a long time, certainly we saw that in the dot-com leading up and then the burst. It took years to recover after 08, 09. Took a little bit less time to recover. Was 2022 the tech recovery? Did it disinflate? And are we now just building up another one? Has that tech cycle, what I'm trying to ask, become so much shorter? Last year, everyone was talking about, is tech not going to lead the market anymore? We've seen these changing of industries leading the markets forward. Some people thought, oh, maybe it's going to be healthcare. Maybe the banks are going to come back in a rising interest rate environment. But it feels like it's still tech, but just a bigger group of tech, not big, seven to 10 names. The MagSafe 7. Listen, I was actually on the other side of that. Like last year, a lot of strategists, a lot of people look at a lot of the data about how markets bottom and new bull markets start. And you would hear that rarely do you see the prior leaders lead the next bull market, that sort of thing. And my contention was it has to be that way because when you look at the structure and you just put your finger like on the most important point, Cisco, Nortel, Lucent, Yahoo, Qualcomm, like they were not anywhere in the class of these companies where they are right now. And like, I I always thought it was going to have to be some grouping of these names that were going to be leading us out because of basically the concentration that they had in the major indices. And so when you think about bank stocks in the lead up to the financial crisis were like somewhat, I think they were like mid to high teens percentage of the S&P 500. And I think at their lows just recently, they were like single digits. Energy in the lead up to different periods were also much higher percentages. Yes, technology has basically found its way into almost every major industry. When you think about, you just mentioned like healthcare, right? There are going to be applications for all of these technologies that are working really well in these large platform tech companies, but they're going to work their way into 
other verticals. Amazon's a great example of a company that has just found their way into almost every major part of our economy, whether it be financial, whether it be health, you know, like the list goes on and on. Logistics, streaming, advertising. So it's like, to me, that's part of the story here. So I guess what investors really have to get comfortable with is like, when we have that next downturn, whenever that recession comes, right, when some of these really exciting technologies become commoditized and become a lower margin business, that sort of thing, what are investors willing to pay for it? Right now, they don't care. So to answer your question about 2022, was that the bloodletting that we needed to start a new bull market? In hindsight, it looks obvious, right? The S&P is up 15% of the year. The NASDAQ's up 30%. The NASDAQ 100 up 36%, but we're still below the highs from January of 2022 in the S&P and November 2021 in the NASDAQ, but the valuations have gotten a lot richer. And so if that recession that people have been talking about, or like the market was discounting was going to happen, I guess, in late last year, in hindsight, if that eventually happens, the question is, how long is it? How deep is it? And then how, what valuations are people willing to pay for some of these technologies that may or may not work themselves into revenue and earnings sometime soon. So to me, I'm still, listen, I'm off sides on this rally here and I've been getting hurt trying to pick tops in some of this stuff. And that's not always a great way to uh, trade. Let me ask you a really broad question then, because I struggle with this a little bit too. Can we say that tech is back if it's this group of mega cap, trillion dollar companies plus leading it, but we still haven't seen a lot of the names come back to the levels, as you said, that they were at in 2021. And the breadth of it is small. But then again, you have an Oracle becoming interesting again. You have some people making the argument, this isn't legacy tech, this is new tech because of the transition or the pivot that it's making. So Where do you fall on that? Yeah, so it's interesting. Oracle is a great example of a company that, you know, was is a roll up for all intents and purposes. They keep buying other companies, multi-billion dollar deals, some very big deals. And this has gone on for 20 years, basically as long as I've been following tech. So when you look like their organic growth has been in some of these big secular shifts, they get growth through acquisition, right? So their ability to talk about how they had $2 billion in excess, like, cloud demand in this quarter at a time because they have the capacity and we know that AWS, we know that Microsoft, we know that Google Cloud, like these guys or people are piling in to their compute because they also are integrating some of this large language models into all this sort of stuff. Of course, Oracle has room. Of course, we're going to be hearing it from IBM. Does that make me want to pay a multiple for a stock that it hasn't traded in for a very long time because they don't, they're not innovators? Not really. Look at the way Oracle gapped up. It traded today. This is Tuesday afternoon into the close. It traded on the opening $124. It's trading $117.5. And two weeks ago, the stock was trading at 100 bucks. So you tell me, like that sort of multiple expansion for a name that's not really innovating, but they have excess capacity in and around the edges of this bubble. Do I want to buy that? I don't think so. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC.
For you listeners that are paying attention, you may have noticed we got some new advertisements that we're running. Yeah, we do. We have a new co-presenting sponsor of OK Computer Podcast. You're going to see Roe across all the risk reversal media properties here. Why? Because I joined the Roe Body Program back in January. And, you know, guy, I mean, listen, this is a audio medium here. But some of the people that see us on the Fast Money or some of our other shows, you see that – I've kind of had a little bit of a body transformation over the last four months. I've lost 30 pounds in four months using Robody, and I am using that drug that everybody is talking about. I was prescribed Wagovi through the Robody program here, and it's just literally changed my life in the last four months. It doesn't seem to be just a body transformation. It seems to be a lifestyle transformation. Last year, I turned 50 years old. My doctors have been hounding me to get my blood pressure down, my cholesterol down, some of the other things that I've kind of been dealing with that a lot of people of our age are dealing with. And every single time, every doctor says, lose 25 pounds and all that other stuff, including sleep apnea, including some gout here and there, will get better. And I got to tell you, man, like all of those things have gotten better, you know, and I'm about 13%. I think the way Robody advertises that you could lose up to 15% of your body weight in a year, I'm already at 13%. But here's the key, man. I have worked out more in the last four months than I worked out all of last year combined. I've also cut out tons of carbs, tons of sugar. So my diet has transformed. So my kind of brain has been rewired at 50 about becoming a whole heck of a lot more healthy. And this weight loss that's happened is like, it makes me feel like I'm taking a wonder drug, which has really kind of supercharged my whole intensity about changing my lifestyle. Well, I've seen the Roe commercials on TV, but tell me more about the company, Dan. Listen, I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. You don't like to go to the doctor. And one of the things that was so interesting to me is that literally you start this all, this whole telehealth process here. They link you up after a free online visit with a U.S. licensed healthcare professional. They deal with all the medication. They deal with this prescription. They deal with your insurance company. And to me, having that all basically done online has just made the whole process um, a lot easier. So listen to our ads, people. Go to the links. Try it out. I'm telling you, it's changed my life in four months. To get our special offer, go to row.co slash OK. That's ro.co slash OK, O-K-A-Y. Talk about a company that is innovating then, pushing, and you could argue pioneering new markets, Apple, right? I'm sure you were watching, right? The presentation in Cupertino. I was there on the ground and I was pretty blown away by it. Really? Okay, so talk to me a little bit because when you guys like all head out to Cupertino and we know that like the company is very guarded about the details of a new product offering, we know that this is the first major new product offering since the watch. I think that the watch is really interesting. I bought my new watch. I bought the Ultra. I bought the $800 price point. And it was interesting. I was looking at some data because I knew we we're going to talk about this Vision Pro. And it was interesting to me that if you look at pricing of smartwatches over the last two years, on the high end, they've gone up the ASPs, the average selling prices. On the mid-range to lower end, they've been going down. They've become commoditized, right? And so when I think about the product that they just introduced, that you got to talk to people at Apple about, you got to talk about tech reviewers and other journalists and other investors and the like, it seemed like people who really appreciate Apple's attention to detail in their vision longer term really loved this product. But then when you talk and looked at some of the reviews of consumers and you'd say to yourself, man, they're not buying this thing anytime soon at $3,500. What's the last 
$3,000 technology gadget that you have bought for yourself or your household. We don't even buy the high-end Macs, right? They can cost two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000. So talk to me like, I'm not buying this thing anytime soon. I'm not a gamer. I'm not the sort of person who's going to sit around in my house and have this sort of device on my head. And I don't buy too many consumer products for $3,500. So I'm curious because the high-end nerds who love this sort of stuff, the early adopters will buy this, but they've already suggested that they are not going to be shipping nearly as many in the first year or two that they thought. So curious about the vision, which is kind of meta for this product. You raise a good point. And I think you're touching on the idea that Apple didn't explain to us the why. Why do you as an average person need that? If you're not a nerd who wants to shell out and be first in this innovation to test it out and play with it, why would you do it? But I will say, I don't think that it needs to at this point. The fact that it put it out there. I don't know if you have been watching. Have you seen the new movie out there on BlackBerry or Research Yeah, and well, Ocean? no, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, no, it's the history of the BlackBerry and it's the guy from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Always so, Sunny, yeah, Dennis. I'm, I'm, yeah, Dennis. The Dennis <laughs> does a system. Great job. He basically just yells and looks really cranky the whole movie. I watched that the other night with my husband. It, it was amazing, right? Because I remember that as having a BlackBerry as my first phone and CrackBerry and being so obsessed with it. And it went back and looked at how the company dealt with the iPhone's release at the time. That's really what this whole movie is about. And I can't remember how expensive the iPhone was. At the iPhone was, you ready for this? In 2007, and I remember it was $700. It was only on Singular, which is the predecessor to, to AT&T's wireless. And at the time, it didn't do anything. Now, Steve Jobs articulated a vision for what this device was going to be, but you could download like the New York Times app on, I don't even think the first one had Wi-Fi, Debo. So, like literally, so you couldn't do anything. It looked cool. It was glass and it was metal and you could do this and you could type on the thing. And to your point about BlackBerry, I the last phone that I had before an iPhone was the BlackBerry Pearl. And do you remember it had that little button and it also had Brick Breaker. And those were the killer apps. For, and it had email, obviously. Wait, don't forget BBM, okay? Yes. Oh, but, th but that was a great device. I loved that phone, okay? And I so know you did. Everyone loved that phone. And that's my point. Everyone loved that phone. The iPhone was ridiculed for not having an actual keyboard. That price point seemed so ridiculous to so many people at the beginning. But all of a sudden, once people understood how good this thing could be, it was off to the races. And BlackBerry Rim no longer would exist. So what I'm saying is maybe about the Vision Pro, I don't know if Lightning can strike twice, but I think what it needs is a killer app. Right? And that's what a lot of folks are saying now. They need a use case, something that's going to compel people to put it on their heads and use it. But I have no doubt that's going to be created. And Apple doesn't need to create that. Developers need to create that. And putting that device out there, unveiling it for developers was step number one. Step two is a developer going and actually making something that's really interesting and compelling that you want to use so badly that you're going to pay $3,000 or maybe they're going to come out with one that's a little bit less expensive. But I'll tell you, Dan, I'm such a nerd because I watched that presentation and I was looking for a camp to put my seven-year-old in June. And I was looking on the internet and I saw AR coding. I thought, Tim Cook tells me that it was personal computing, mobile computing, spatial computing. So I'm going to let him try that out. And I think, you know, just as we look to the future, as we look to innovation, artificial intelligence is an easy one, but Spatial computing, that may be underappreciated right now. I agree with you 100%. And I think it's important to just recall that the last really tech bubble that we all experienced in the last few years was about the metaverse. And it was about spatial computing. And so this was very much tied to 
Facebook's aspirations in the hardware space, obviously, which is the gateway, right, to a metaverse or the metaverse, however you want to describe. I agree with that. I think that if you're an analyst or an investor and you're thinking about what does the Vision Pro do to your Apple 2024 estimates, it, forget it, write it off. Because right now, I think it's important is like the ASP for iPhones have never been higher, okay? If you think about that, then people are going and they're buying an $800 watch ultra. They have $250 pro AirPods in their ears, right? This is all some way, shape or form connected into a vision, like I say, about all of the computing that's related to your supercomputer, which is your iPhone. And that's not even talking about what you have on your desk or what you carry around as far as an iPad or a MacBook. And what you're talking about here too, when you're listing the many products, is this installed base of 2 billion devices. Forget services, forget the number of iPhones that Apple is selling. That installed base, which could grow larger with the Vision Pro, is just going to keep the dollars coming in. Talk about the Prime ecosystem, but the Apple ecosystem has been stealthily built up and it's a powerhouse. I was reading one analyst note, that's be the next thesis to get Apple's valuation higher. It's no longer us looking at how many iPhones they're selling. It's the installed base and how much they're spending. I agree with that 100%. And it's funny because to me, I'm actually much more comfortable with an Apple multiple at 30 times earnings, 27, 26 times next year on expected EPS in sales growth of, let's say, high single digits than I am about, let's say, some of the other stuff that is really trading off the future expectations of what this unknown technology integration means for their big platforms. All of this is about services. We haven't even talked about as it relates to Apple, what are they gonna do in health? What are they doing in finance, right? Like there's a whole host of things. When you talk- in We didn't a, even get to, it's one of my favorite topics, Apple and financial service. Two billion installed base. I won't go into it, but it's crazy. Let me just say, I have my money in Chase, 0.01 AP. Why? Okay. I was earning nothing on my savings and I'm Canadian, right? So I got to put a large chunk in and let it sit there because I got to go back and forth. Moved it to Apple. Amazing. 4.15. It's just night and day. And I feel like it's only a matter of time in this interest rate environment until the average consumer wakes up to that. Yeah. And I guess the other point is going back to how you started this conversation, you sat through that two hour presentation. It was a third about Vision Pro. They did not mention AI. We know that Apple, and you think about R&D, has deployed billions and billions of dollars in machine learning. And, and think about how this is going to work with spatial computing. This is all technology that's going to be embedded in there. And they announced a product that comes at a time where we're in the middle of an AI frenzy in both public, again, and private markets. So to me, it just seemed tone deaf. If you weren't willing to give Tim Cook and Apple the benefit of the doubt that they actually have vision a couple years out rather than putting their finger on the moment, because that's not what they do. I actually disagree with that. I think that it was like the flex of all flexes. They know that every company is trying to pepper AI, artificial intelligence into everything that they do. They sat back and said, we're Apple. We don't even need to do that. We're so good that we're just going to say machine learning. We're not going to hit people over the head with it. We're just going to continue to do what we've always done. And in a weird way, maybe that's for you and I that cover this stuff every day. But again, I don't think the average person is sitting there and thinking that much about generative AI and how to get into it. And that was just such an interesting flex and in a weird way showed their strength because they didn't have to 
say AI a million times. You know what? I really like that take. And I think that is is very Apple as you're sitting in their $5 billion spaceship in Cupertino. And one of the things that I think is like, the coolest thing about it is that, yes, uh, Oculus, where you can't see through like to the other side, all of a sudden, here is a device that you actually can see in and around the room. It is not about virtual reality. I think one of the things that I thought most interesting in the lead up to this launch was that it was very much billed as a mixed reality headset. So it's going to have much more uses than just some of the things that you think from a gaming standpoint. And I get it. There's a lot of like enterprise applications. I know a lot of people working on a lot of cool technology that's going to help redefine the workspace, especially as we're not all in person anymore. And that's going to be here to stay. Listen, this thing offers a lot of promise, but if you were like a retail investor buying Apple stock into that event last week or so, you probably didn't get what you expected to do. The AI rally is actually bailing you out because the stock made a new all-time high. It's like rising tide is going to list all boats, big and small. Is it raising the small boats? So that's how, yes, it is. Some of the ones that are peppering the opposite of what Apple did, peppering their earnings calls with AI. I'm more willing to believe there's a bubble there, right? And that when push comes to shove and they're going to have to prove their products and tell us what they are, who they're working with, that may not hold up. Adobe, this is not a small company. They're going to report their earnings Thursday after the close. This is a $200 billion market cap company. And if you were just to pull up the stock chart, this stock was trading south of 350. It was trading 333 on May 15th. Here we are. It's almost June 15th, right? And the stock traded as high today as 491. You just think of that on a percentage basis. You think of that in market cap terms. And you and I talked about it a couple of weeks ago when they introduced a bunch of generative AI across different platforms, you know, that they have. And they're basically just further integrating this technology that of course they've been working on. Of course it's been part of the roadmap, but they put out a press release. They talk about it in the public and the stock gains 25% and it's gaining 40, $50 billion in market cap. And so you ask yourself as an investor to have that sort of a price appreciation in such a short period of time in something that are the public markets are meant to be a discounting mechanism. You know, that's not something I think you want to buy into yet especially when we have levels of complacency in the markets with interest rates where they are, with the Fed doing what they've been doing here. Even though inflation's been coming down, it's still much higher. It's double what the Fed's long-term target has always been about 2%. I just feel like that there's accidents waiting to happen. And my spidey senses are just been raising just pretty dramatically over. You probably sensed it over the last month or two, because I feel like the higher we go in the shorter amount of time is the harder we can fall. And I've never... I've not wanted to use the word of the potential for a crash, but like when you have so much concentration and so much enthusiasm and such a small group of names, you do heighten the risk of that. So I don't make judgments on and I don't make calls on whether this is going to crash or whether it's a bubble. I ask questions to try and figure it out for our audience. But I have to say last year, I understood the argument much better how we were in a bubble, how these valuations may be down and never get back up, right? Talk about Cisco during the dot-com, never reached that height again. And Amazon, though, of course, traded what under a dollar and then went on to become one of the biggest companies in the world. I, I Maybe it's because I'm based here in San Francisco, and but I do see like an NVIDIA, right, reporting a few weeks ago. We thought that this generative AI shift was secular, was sometime off in the future. What NVIDIA told us was that it's right here. And I am more concerned as if there's a bubble at the earliest stages. I see on the private side in startup world, 
companies valued at a billion dollars with zero revenue that are gaining because of the AI shift. I see it less at the mega cap tech level because they're set to be the winners as we talked about. And then we can talk as well about whether startups want to receive funding from venture capitalists or from the biggest AI adjacent companies in the world who can also give them computing power. But I, I don't know. I'm, start, I'm starting to buy into the idea that this shift could be bigger than anything we've seen and keep it keep the party going. The shift will continue to be, and I guess we could think about it this way. Okay, think about crypto, right? Think about why blockchain... You can't, you can't put crypto no, and no, AI in this. No, but, but what I want to say is think about some of the early adopters. Think about some of the early institutional investors, okay? They were VC, right? And they saw what they thought was a very disruptive technology in blockchain. And when you think about investment that went into that Web3, a whole host of DeFi sort of stuff, the same early investors, I don't think they've lost their mettle about investing in the space and their views about the adoption. They put their heads down, they continue to invest, they continue to build. That, that's the analogy I want to use, okay? So what I'm saying is when I think about what's gone on in the private markets, here's a great example. We had Rick Heitzman was on a couple of weeks ago for Smart Capital. He was talking about Synthesa. Today, it's announced that they just did a Series C. They raised $90 million at a billion-dollar valuation. This is a company that takes text and they turn it into video avatars. It's fascinating technology. It's amazing. I can I can think of a bunch of use cases why uh, it could be really interesting and transformative and everything like that. Billion dollar valuation. That was happened upon because you had investors in the private markets, early stage, willing to bet on it. Now, what we're seeing to your point is that there's such an arms race, right? In and around some of these big platform companies, they want to invest in these companies because they want them using their technology. And I think that- and since They don't want to be disrupted too. That's right. And so all of a sudden now, you have access to their compute, you have access to their chips, you have access to their data centers, they're giving you money. There's been a shift as far as what is interesting if you're an AI-focused startup, where you want to get capital and resources from and might not be VC at the Series B, C, D level. I think here's the difference between the crypto blockchain bubble and what we're seeing now is that crypto and blockchain technology was never incorporated into people's habits, their everyday lives, besides checking their crypto accounts, which ended up many cases being Ponzi schemes, right? The only really use case for crypto was to try and pitch it to other people and build up the price. Generative AI, like I told you, I'm on Bard. It has replaced the Google search for me in many cases. And I think you talked about other ways in which we see artificial intelligence in our lives, right? Not necessarily generative, but the way we even search through Netflix, what we see, how we don't want to screw up our <laughs> Netflix algorithms by going on someone else's account. So this is all use case and being incorporated into our habits. I guess the only thing I would say right there is that you're an early adopter. I think most people in our country are just not doing that. I'm not using them. I used them a little bit. I thought they sucked. And the other thing I'll just say is that they feel almost cumbersome in a way. It feels like too much. The whole beauty of Google was the simplicity of the page, the box in the middle, right? And putting something in and getting something out that generally was fairly accurate and led you to somewhere else. And I guess my point, I just make this, is that have you seen some of the data about the cost of compute for these searches versus a Google search, a regular Google search? So to me, that's the thing that if they don't have consumers really take this up, people are going to be like, why are we spending so much money to generate these results that are better, but they're not being like, there's not wide adoption of it. The only thing I'd say in response to that, though, is that, yes, I am an early adopter. I would have loved to test out some blockchain use cases. I couldn't. Everywhere I looked, I could not. It was no possibility for me to interact with it. 
I didn't mean yeah, to make no, that I know, as an I know analogy. You're not saying yeah, the same yeah. thing. I know. I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that, yeah, we don't even know yet. You're right. Besides ChatGPT and Bard, which is consumer facing, which although it did, it's not just early adopters, right? Because 100 million users in record time is a substantial amount. Google's incorporating it too into their searches. But you're right. Can all of these companies exist? And you have in the startup world with ridiculous propositions, talk to someone from the dead. Cool. How long can you do that for? Or a famous person. So I hear your point. I, listen, D, I remember in the year 2000, somebody said the word Google to me. I used to go to Yahoo for search, okay? And, and I remember going to Google and I remember the simplicity of the search and the way that they ranked things. And then you did it again and then you did it again. And you did it. It didn't take long to figure out that this was better. And then it was all over for Yahoo. It was all over for any other search engine. And for the last 20 some years, that's all we've been using. Is there a high probability that Google search will be disrupted by some, of course. And who knows, it, it could be Alphabet disrupting themselves, but the likelihood that OpenAI and Microsoft do it, I'm not gonna bet on that right now at all. You know what I'm saying? But it might be one of these companies that was just minted at a billion dollars, but I doubt they'll happen on their own because if you asked me before, What's changed? I think what's changed is that all of these companies, and I know the regulatory environment's really tough for billion dollar acquisitions of these big platform companies to go do that sort of stuff. But what's changed is that there's been nothing that has really bubbled up that's been able to challenge any of the major incumbents in tech in a very long time. Except ChatGPT. And so Microsoft couldn't outright acquire it. So they did this other deal that essentially gave it the same but, thing. But that and TikTok. And when you think about TikTok, and TikTok uses a lot of machine learning, but again, you and I have talked about this a bunch too. Social platforms have been very ephemeral. All right. Speaking of ephemeral, I hope that you will be back next week. We won't have to wait two weeks for you, Debo. We really appreciate all of your insights, all of your reporting. Everybody, you can watch her on CNBC's Tech Check all day long on the aforementioned CNBC. So thanks for being with us here. I really enjoyed the conversation. Dan, thank you for having me. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.